This is our fourth piece. We've got, we got a journey together. We take our time. But this is entitled, He Came to Himself. Now, we've been sharing this. Uh, we've been putting it into context in the past few weeks. We've been talking about the occasion that prompted Jesus to share this story. Again, a parable is a story that Jesus told to illustrate a truth. Perhaps there's no greater parable in all the scriptures than the parable of the prodigal son. Certainly is one of the most well-known. It would be difficult to categorize what was the best parable Jesus ever gave, but if we were putting together a list, this would certainly be at or near the top because it touches the most profound issues of the human experience, and at the same time it captures the essence of everything that God says, and really that Jesus taught us that God, God had brought himself to be for us. And so it's just filled with a lot of different things for us to lay hold of and apply to our own heart. So we're just going to jump in. We're not going to go back and, and relook at where we've been so much. I'm just going to read fairly rapidly through these uh, verses here. They're in your handout. You're also obviously welcome to look through the scriptures directly. But in Luke 15, verses 11 through 16, I'm going to read this. It says, He said, Jesus, that there, there was a certain man who had two sons, uh, the younger of them said to his father, that younger is the one that we call the prodigal, Father, I want you to give me the portion of goods that falls to me. I need my inheritance now. We want, I want to cash it in. And so he divided to them his livelihood. We talked a lot about that. And not many days after, the younger son gathered everything that he had together, and he, he journeyed to a far country. And there he wasted, completely vanquished all that he had. I mean, it was empty. He emptied it out. He wasted Everything that he had been given, all his possessions, everything, with prodigal or wasteful living, lavishly wasteful living. But when he had spent all, it was the worst time. We talked about the timing of his situation and how Jesus paints us this picture because the economy takes a downturn. It says there was a severe famine in that land, and, in, and as a result, he began to be in, in want, complete need. And then he, the prodigal son, went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. He got hired on. But the only job he could get was to go do something that in Jesus' day it would have been considered not just undignified, it would have been considered a tragic thing. So we read this and we go, oh, he's a pig feeder. But to Jesus' audience, because the pig was the unclean animal of the unclean, it was to, at some level to lose your identity. I can't, I'm trying to think about, you know, I was, in my mind I was going over, what would it be like? It'd be like he was selling himself. And um, he was, the picture of him in the mud that follows here, it says that he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods, the carob pods that they fed the pigs. So basically, he, hadn't, he had taken whatever he could get, and all that he could get was just a little bit of food for feeding these pigs. And that's the picture that Jesus gives us. The idea of him being in the mud and in the mire and in the stench is intentional. Jesus paints the picture of someone who is tragically lost and absolutely devastated. He is a picture of despairing wretchedness. And it's in this place that Jesus says this is where he found himself. So the picture is not only uh, a picture of you know, what he was doing, feeding the pigs and, and, and says also that if it was possible he would have eaten their food the food wasn't edible for a human being but if it was possible he was feeling like as he was feeding them they are eating better than I am but the phrase, notice the last phrase of verse 16 
says no one gave him anything. Jesus says not only was he at the lowest point, he was the bottom of the bottom, but it says that he was also completely abandoned. He might as well have been the invisible man. Nobody noticed, nobody cared. He was a foreigner in a foreign land at a bad time. And as a result, he was completely disregarded. I can only think that, that there are times in our lives where maybe a lot of us have felt abandoned or disregarded or completely alone. But perhaps few of us will ever be able to completely relate to what Jesus says prodigal found himself in. This place in which nobody cared. I mean, honestly, the pigs were being treated better than he was. It would have been impossible for him not to see himself in some people's eyes as less than human. Something less than, something unnoticed, uncared for, completely abandoned. And it was in this place, Jesus says, with the, with the profound brevity that he uses, he, it says, as he was sitting there, and he invites us to think about it, as he's sitting there, he, and you know when you're alone, and he's hungry, and he's thinking, because when you're alone, you think a lot. And he's thinking about his life. And he, perhaps he start, had in the past entertained the possibility of going back home, but how could he go back home? I mean, it would, his, his pride wouldn't let him go. He, he would be ashamed. But it was getting really bad. And you see the picture of Jesus, he's feeding them, he's, he's thinking. And then there's this magnificent phrase. It says, and he came to himself. I love that phrase. Something shifts in him. Something breaks. Something is dislodged. Something finally opens up the little crack in the window. It's just something small, but he starts to think, what if I do? What if I do? What if I do? What if I, what if I just go back to my father's house? Here I am, I'm, I'm starving to death. My pride's keeping me here. In my father's house, the hired servants, they, they eat better than I do. I, they have food and food to spare. They're treated well. I'll, and he starts to think. And he says he came to himself. Now, let me just say for a moment. You know what that phrase indicates? He came to himself. What it implies is that in his condition in the far country, he was something other than his true self. You don't come back to yourself unless you've been away from yourself. And the idea, Jesus, I think, is submitting it to us. He's rolling it out there. He's saying, we are never, ever truly ourselves apart from God. Ever. We are, are, we are never truly ourselves apart from home, apart from the Heavenly Father's embrace. We are never, any attempt to define ourselves apart from God is a fool's play. I put in our handout a, a quotation that I, I wrote down because I didn't want, I wanted to be precise with it. At the bottom of the middle column there, it says, lost in a far country. And I was writing, I said, whenever we attempt to know ourselves, define ourselves, understand ourselves, apart from God, no matter how sophisticated, educated, intelligent, insightful, successful, or advanced we are or suppose ourselves to be, we are lost in that far country. In other words, any time we define ourselves apart from God, we may not be in the mud, but we're just as lost. We don't know who we are, because who we are is connected to God. That's what Jesus is driving at. Home is where, where, home is where God is. 
now and I mentioned who he was last week we talked about I talked about his book the return of the prodigal that I particularly enjoyed preparing for this series I put this in the third column there notice stay with it kind of look at him may go back and look at it again it says the world's love is and always will be conditional he was talking about what it means to drift away from God as long as I keep looking for my true self and this is connected to the video that we showed earlier as long as I try to find my true self in the world of conditional love I will remain hooked to the world trying failing and trying again that was a theme coming out of that story we looked at it is a world that fosters addictions it's our world because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest craving of my heart now and writes addiction might be the best word to explain the lostness that so deeply permeates contemporary society our addictions make us cling to what the world proclaims as the keys to self-fulfillment and what are those things well accumulation of wealth and power that will make me somebody uh, the, the consumption, notice here, it says the, the attainment of status and admiration, the lavish consumption of food and drink, sexual gratification without distinguishing between lust and love. These addictions, these pursuits, they create expectations that cannot but fail to satisfy our deepest needs. That's the point we were making. As long as we live within the world's delusions, our addictions condemn us to futile quests in the distant country leaving us to face an endless series of disillusionments while our sense of self remains unfulfilled. I am, now and says, the prodigal son, or you can say the prodigal daughter. Every time we search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. It was quite profound when he says prodigal comes to himself. Comes to himself. Again, the truth that Jesus is nudging our way, he's trying to get us to understand, is that we are never ourselves when we are other than when we are home with our father let's put it that way that is when we are our true self I was you know and our, by the way our world our world our culture does not see it that way I was I was thinking about this you know and how uh, Paul was talking about the dominant culture and he himself in Acts 26 was was and I put this in a little piece of this in your handout and just kind of deviate off the course because there's so much about our culture that preaches that, you know, um, it's okay to have faith in faith if it gets you by, as long as you don't take it too seriously. And, you know, I, the, the, the problem is this was never meant to be dabbled with. Jesus is saying, in, I, Jesus is saying, no, your, our true self will never be found apart from a complete opening to God that it, it is not something that was meant to just be all oh, kind of on the side a little crutch to get a weak people through something now uh, here's an example is Paul for example here's a here's an account it's in Acts 25 and 26 Paul is before uh, two men each of them interestingly enough represent something in Acts 25 and 26 the Apostle is brought interestingly enough in chains um, he's a prisoner He's made an appeal to Rome. People have been trying to kill him because he's been preaching Christ. He's brought before two men. Each of them are very powerful men. One of them is a man named Festus. He's a, a Roman governor. He has no idea of what the, the scriptures are. He doesn't any, have any clue about Messiah. He, he, is, he represents someone who is completely in the dark about uh, spirit, really about anything relating to the things of the scriptures. He's, he, doesn't, he has no understanding. His worldview has not been exposed to that. So he's one man. The other one uh, is King Agrippa. And King Agrippa, 
he is someone who actually does have a knowledge of the scriptures, and he's been, he's been exposed to many of the things that Paul's talking about. So for one man, it will seem completely uh, incredulous. The other, with some knowledge, uh, who they're both listening to him uh, share his story, he can consider it in a different way because he has a familiarity with many of the concepts and was aware of who Paul was involved with. And Paul says, Paul says, let me tell you my story and why I'm here. They said, because he, he was called to testify to these men, and he's telling them in his change, he says, I, I used to be, you, let me tell you my story, I was not always this way. I was not always a believer in Jesus. I was at one point in my life actually quite the opposite. I was a persecutor of this thing called the way. I believed Jesus to be a fraud. I believed it to be completely something that was meant to hijack our religion. And so I opposed it vehemently with great passion. And it was, in fact, my, oh, oh excellent king, while I was on my way to persecuting um, these people who I was hunting down, that I was confronted with an inescapable reality. And it, it, we call it, he says it actually occurred on the road to Damascus, modern day. Syria. He says, and on this road, I was struck, and I was, I was confronted. And the only thing I can tell you that in this heavenly vision, what I saw was Jesus confronted me and asked me the question, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And he says, after that moment, my life radically changed. I became no longer a persecutor of the church. I devoted myself to fulfilling the calling that God placed on my life. And he says that I have, since that time, been proclaiming Christ everywhere as anywhere that I can, in any circle that I can, and I have been declaring him to be the promised one of the Jewish people and of the world, the Messiah. I tell you, he is not only the Savior, he is the one, the first one to ever rise from the dead. He is the Savior, the risen Savior of the world, a light to the Jew and a light to the Gentile alike. And he says, I tell you this with great, and this is, and then all of a sudden the Bible says that Festus, the Roman governor, is listening to this, and he goes, you're insane! You're crazy. Your learning has made, you can look at it, your learning has made you mad. You're, you don't even, you, what are you talking about? Notice what he says there. He says, I am not, I am not, uh, earlier this morning they were making fun of me because I, I, all of a sudden I was pretending to be Paul and I pointed my finger and he said, what happened to the chain? So, I am not insane. <laughs> I am not insane. Okay. You happy? All right. Okay. I am not insane as you think I am. And then he says to Festus, no, this is not true. I, the words that I share with you, they are, they are sound and they are reasonable and they are true. Interesting statement to make. And then he says, oh, King Agrippa, most excellent king. He says, you know what I am talking about. You are familiar. He turns from Festus, who had called him insane and crazy. He turns to Agrippa and he says, you know what I'm talking about. You are familiar with the prophets. I know you are. I know you are. You know the things I share now are not off the wall. And it says that Agrippa was there, and he, he, it's one of these really amazing moments. You go back and look, check it out. He says that Agrippa, at this point, Agrippa, he was gripped. <laughs> and he says, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. There's a statement. And Paul says, Oh, I wish it were so. Except that you would be like me, except, of course, for these chains. The, 
the, the point being is there's a lot of a lot of today in our culture we're being preached at on a regular basis that real life is kind of lived without any reference to God. That that's again a delusion for weak people. You know, you're in, if you take it, it's okay to dabble, to be okay if it helps you get through this life. But if you actually take it seriously, you're crazy. Now think about it. So many of the images that we're bombarded with on a regular basis, and it's our, my, I'm part of this, this is my world too, I live in it, I understand it, but so much of what we see as normative life, whether it's TV or the movies that are, you know, that's where a lot of our exchange occurs, on the computer, with now the, the explosion of video and all the things that we can look at, but so much of it basically communicates that real life is lived normatively without any real reference to God. And all you need to do is really take a look at the, uh, regularly the films that we look at on a regular basis. And honestly, it's constantly being preached at us that, well, you know what, that's not really real life. And, and part of it is because, like Festus, a lot of people just don't really understand. So, this is crazy. I don't get it. Now, here's the deal. I was, interestingly enough, at a, I went to see a film. Somebody had told me to go see a film called, and it's by Ron Howard. It was called In the Shadow of the Moon. And it's somewhat obscure. It kind of has a documentary aspect. It was a great film in a way because I had gone there. My wife and I went there late one night, and we were watching this, this film. And uh, it's still out. And it's talking about the, the people, the men, who had actually walked on the moon. And they're getting older now. There's only a few, handful of human beings that have ever walked on the moon and experienced that experience, um, been to the moon. And the reason it was interesting is because in the film, I was, I, I was kind of caught off guard because... In the film, the, the astronauts are talking, and, and he lets them just talk. And I'm, I was surprised because I was not expecting them. There was so much of how their experience had been shaped and opened up their hearts towards God. Many of these astronauts, as they talked about their perspective of seeing the smallness of the Earth from the moons, from the, it, they said it, it really changed everything. It changed their lives. It brought them to God. One of them talked about how that experience actually impacted him to completely turn his life over. And he says it, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Now, it wasn't, he was talking about how these, this, this was woven into the film. And I, what was kept coming up was how in awe these men were when they actually got a perspective of the smallness of things. And how part of them, just like David, in fact, they read, they talked about the controversy that occurred when they were, to read, they were given an opportunity to read something when they were looking at the earth. And they chose Genesis 1 in the beginning God created and how that was a controversial thing but they felt it in their heart to do it and I've thought about how David in the Psalms talks about you know Lord when I consider the moon and the stars that you have created in fashion they talked about the artistry and the vastness of that creation the smallness of it, how sometimes we live in a delusion that this is it and Jesus comes to say no we are never more truly ourselves than when we learn to know God that we were made to know God that there's, that there's a part of us that even when we would deny it is drawn to something more. We want to live. Where did that come from? Where did this desire to create things, where did it come from? Where does this capacity to know and love and dream and imagine, where does it come from? It came from an artist. We look at beautiful art and we go, oh, what an artist. How they conceived it first in their mind and now we get to enjoy his beauty to contemplate his story. It, can it be? So it is with God that Paul, Paul was saying, no, it's not insane. You just don't understand. 
That's what, that's what he was trying to get at. So when we see prodigal coming to himself, what we are really being a given, is, oh, you know, given is a picture of someone returning to who he really truly was. Because that's when we're really at home. That's what I'm saying. As long as we're away from God, and no matter what the other maskings are, no matter what other... Because all this stuff, man, it leaves us empty. It will leave us empty. It leaves us empty. At the end of the day, we were born for more. It says here, he comes to himself. Go back to verse 17. And I guess for me, that's prodigals saying at that moment, this is, this, this is the moment, he says, it came to himself... He says, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going I'm 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 to go home. I'm going to go home. And he was doing what a lot of us do when we're, when we're thinking about the conversation we're going to have with somebody and we're scared about how it's going to come out. And we start rehearsing in our head what we're going to say. And he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home. And I'll say, Father, Father, I've sinned. I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven. I mean it. And, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son, I just want a job as a higher servant. That's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home. And I don't care how I look, what I've done. Powerful epiphany, a moment, an awakening. There it is. Now, I'm going to suggest that right there, his words are a model for us to, to look at. They're a model of how we can approach God when we've been away. But it's also a model, practically speaking, of how we can also restore a relationship with another person that we care about, but we have had the lion's share of responsibility for the problem, and we know it. I want to suggest that there are principles that, that we can put our hands around. And the first one is this, that when we, when we truly want to get better, and come back, the first thing we need to be willing to do is own it. Prodigal says, I have sinned. Notice that. I have sinned. Don't, there's no, don't blame. Own our part. And it was, it was owning. He, was gonna, he said, I, I have sinned against you. This is what I'm going to tell him. I have sinned against you. I disregarded you. I, I ignored your counsel. I, I was willful. I chose my way. I knew what I was doing. I know you told me not to. I did it anyway. I've, I've done stuff. I've, that's, I'm going to tell them. I, now, you know what's interesting? There was no feeling there of, there's no expectation of reciprocation. What I mean by that is this. A lot of times we'll come and, and um, we feel like, yeah, we did something wrong. And, and you know, we probably, it was mainly our, mainly our fault. And so we will come to somebody and we'll say, you know, I'll probably go back. I'll take the first step. I'll kind of go and I'll say, you know, this is what I've done and I, I'll own that. Now I'm sorry. And so we'll go and we'll say to someone, you know, I did this. And, you know, I realized when I said that or when I did this that I was wrong. So um, 
and then we'd finish, and then we'd say, okay, and, and what about you? You know, you, <laughs> right? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I did that, yes. And the other person's saying, you're right, you did, absolutely. <laughs> and we're saying, uh-huh. And what about you and your role in this? Because, you know, but see, that betrays the truth. Listen, when God puts in our heart to, to own something, we own it independent of the other person. It's not conditional on the other person's acknowledging their role. We don't say, I'll, I own it, but it, it needs to be propped up with you also owning your part. We do it because God put in our heart to do it. And that means I own it. I, what does he say? I have sinned. I, I. Not, you should have talked me out of it. Not, I wish you would have come down and got me. Not, come on now, you know who I am. You should have covered me. No, no. I have sinned against you and against God. See, that's powerful. Nothing else. Secondly, notice the next phrase. I am, now, he's, this is his phrase. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What is that? That has to do with the idea of humility. And so we're talking about this issue of exercising humility. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. We need to be able to hang up our ego on the, on the hook and say, look, you know what? I'm, 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 I'm coming here with, listen, no expect, but no, no sense of entitlement. You owe me nothing. In fact, I'm not even making an assumption here that, that I am worthy to be called your son anymore. I come only, I, I come with no expectation of be, really beyond, of, of being restored back. I don't say, you owe me. I don't say, well, if you really love me. I don't say, I come with an openness. I declare my unworthiness, my need. Thirdly, he says, what? Would you make me as a hired servant? What does that t- t- remind us of? Reminds us of that we have to commit ourselves when we do this right to hard work. This, the idea of, I saw the picture of a hired servant as someone who's going to work. Because a lot of times we'll come, how do I say it? We'll come and there's been, a, there's been a violation of trust. So we violated the trust. We've broken that. And so there's damage. There's a breach. And so we come back and we say, you know, I want to make it right. I want to, I want to restore. I want to, um, I, want to, I, want to, I want to get back going in the right direction. And, and so we're, we're our sincere. But then don't be surprised when our sincerity is tested. Like, it, like the prodigal, maybe the prodigal said, well, I'm just going to say to him, make me a higher, make, would you make me a higher servant? And then I know he'll go, you know, you don't need to worry about being a higher servant. You're my son, right? So a lot of times we'll come, we'll say, you know, this is what I'm willing to do. And then we, we get in shock when someone says, okay. Well, I was just saying that. I didn't really mean it. I, I was just kind of throwing it out there as a way. I didn't really, like if the father had said, okay, that sounds good. You're no longer my son. You're a hired servant. But the, the idea is, you know what? I get that. No expectation of, of and then sometimes it's like hard work means that I'm going to have to stick with this thing. That the, the, it's not just going to be words. I'm going to, by God's grace, I'm going to try to, not, it's not so much earning back the trust, it, but, but there's an element of saying, you know what, sometimes, in, especially in a human scenario where we're dealing with people, sometimes it's, it's, we, we have to drink that cup. We have to say, I, I wounded. It's not penance, but it is a matter of showing that we're not just saying stuff. 
We mean it. We get that. Last thing I'll say, and this is certainly true when, we, when we're coming back to God, when we want to go home, we've got to be courageous. It takes courage. It takes a lot of courage to, to try again. It takes a lot of courage. You say, well, what, what, what? He, he had nothing to lose. I'll say, actually, you know what? There's a lot of prodigals who never go home. We're going to talk about that next week. It takes courage because you don't really know. I mean, there's always voices telling you, you go back, you'll make a fool of yourself. They'll laugh at you. Your brother, he's going to push this thing to the end. You're not going to have any chance. You're just going to be humiliated. You're so ashamed. You've got nothing to go back to. You left it all. There, you're, you burned your bridges. Forget it. And you know what? It takes courage to say, you know what? I, I'm going home anyway. I'm going home. And, you, and a lot of times coming back to the place where God calls us, it requires courage. But you know what? We're going to see it beautifully that whenever we come back to God, whenever we return back to what is right, whenever we make that journey back home, that the Lord, He's so good. And He'll kiss our dirty cheeks. And He will forgive us. That's what Jesus was saying. He was saying, you want to know what God is like? He'll be hurt by you and love you anyway because His love is not dependent on you. It's not because of who we are or what we've done. It's because of who He is. And He gave His only begotten Son.